0: Hello. Can you hear me
1: okay? What?
0: Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three day in person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Widmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 28 of the Adventures in Angular podcast. This week on our panel we have Aaron Frost. Hello. Ward Bell. Hello. Lucas Rubelke. Hey there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, with a quick reminder to go check out JS JSRemoteConf. That's at jsremoteconf.com. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Jeff Welpley.
2: Salutations.
0: Do you want to introduce yourself real quick, Jeff?
2: Sure. Uh, My name is Jeff Welpley. I'm the chief architect at GetHuman. I've been a software developer for about 13 years or so, uh, working on everything from PHP to Java to .NET to C++ But the past two years at GetHuman, I've uh, kind of focused in on just JavaScript for everything. And uh, that's kind of what we've been building out our new platform in.
0: All right. So um, we brought you on to talk about isomorphic JavaScript and Angular. And I have to ask, because I didn't get a really good idea of this, Googling around, what in the heck is isomorphic JavaScript? (laughs)
2: So, yeah, it's a good question to start off with. And before talking about, uh, even Angular, let's just, you know, define kind of what isomorphic is and what isomorphic JavaScript is. So, like, isomorphic is just a term meaning, you know, being of identical, similar form and shape, uh, and structure. And so when you're talking about with JavaScript, it means using the same JavaScript code in different contexts or containers. And kind of the simple example of that is if you just have you know, let's just say a simple function of taking in a parameter of A and B and you add A and B and return the result. That's total simple function. And that function by nature is isomorphic because you can take that and throw it anywhere, whether it's in a browser or Node.js on the server or in PhoneGap or wherever JavaScript will run. But with a lot of other things, it's a little bit tougher. Uh, like if you are using Angular code, the Angular context is not every place. So when you do Angular dot, you need to have Angular bootstrapped before you can get started. And so Angular by itself, before you do anything, is not isomorphic. But there are things you can do in order to uh, make Angular or anything else isomorphic so that you can actually run it in those different contexts. And really, at the end of the day, the goal of isomorphic JavaScript is sort of creating ultra-dry code you know, do not repeat yourself. And I know we all try to do that, but pretty much everybody kind of inevitably creates, either whether it's a data validation or whatever it is, we end up duplicating code across our environments.
1: So it goes beyond server-side
2: rendering of Angular templates. Yeah, that's the thing, is that server-side rendering is sort of the thing most people focus on when they talk about isomorphic JavaScript. But the way that I treat it and and really when you get into it you think about it is with all of your code and rendering is an important part of that but data is another big part of that you know how your data models the definitions and validations involved with it as well as interfaces for you know calling out to an api versus the database as well as routing like server-side routing versus client routing is different you know you're using your express router versus your angular ui router or whatever but in order to do isomorphic write, you have to create interim or um, modules that can be utilized both of those routing mechanisms, regardless of where it is. So it goes, yeah, it goes beyond just the server rendering.
1: So oh. Jeff,
0: I have seen a portion of this. Um, obviously, I was around kind of at the genesis when you started to play around with this idea. In the course of the year, the last year, like, how much overlap have you actually got? How successful have you been in this? I mean, it sounds pretty fantastical. Yeah, it's
2: a good question because uh, if you guys didn't know, you know Lucas uh, worked with me on this actually uh, about a year ago, and so at that, that time, was a
1: softball question. Lucas <laughs> knows. <laughs> uh, well, no, sort
2: I- of, you know. So at the point where he was working with me, we were in like iteration one of this, and we had figured out some things, like the uh, the data side was uh, something that we did a really good job of. while Lucas was there figuring out how to make um, all of the data objects. Isomorphic that we can use them at the different layers uh, and routing to a degree, but the view layer was still not working. And That's sort of why Lucas was asking that question, I think, because we we were still duplicating our views. We had a completely separate view on the server versus the client. So that the past year, what we really focused on was pulling that together, and, and that was the most difficult part, to be quite honest. Um, but we finally did figure that out, and uh, it's working pretty well now.
0: So. I have to ask, though, it seems like between the front end and the back end, a lot of times you have different concerns. So is this only the code for, say, certain behaviors that you want to share between the front end and the back end? So, for example, uh, validating something on a data model of some kind. You know, you probably want to be able to do that on the front end so you can give immediate feedback, and you want to do it on the back end so you're not putting crap into whatever database you're using.
2: Yes, yeah, good question. Even though you're writing everything in this common format, It is true that depending on what container you're running your code in, there are certain things that just, you know, you either need or don't need. So just as an example um, of where you might not need something on the client side, you have a lot of times UI events, a user click or, um, you know, some other event is caused by the user doing something, whereas on the server, that's not needed at all. So even though you create a common format that you know for the HTML and the template uh, so that it can render in both places, on the server side, it's much simpler, to be quite honest, because you're just doing the initial state, the initial render, and you don't even have to worry about the other stuff. Now, as far as data validation, that that's definitely something that is done in both places, but how it's actually implemented could be different. So on the client side, for using Angular you could utilize the angular form validation controls. Whereas on the server, you might have like you know, on Mongo in, in Mongoose they have a way of um, doing validation within Mongoose, right? But you can write your code in um, sort of a configuration format, like type format where you're uh, just writing, let's say a, for a given model, like let's say the model is called user and in your user model, there is a field username that's required and has a regex and, you know, some other validations. You can write that from a developer in a very, you know, uh, format that's totally agnostic of what container it's in, just a simple configuration. But then once you have it running within a container, there are adapters that hook into it. Um, and that's part of building a smart framework is that you have to have uh, container-specific adapters so that on the... Client side, that validation will automatically generate an Angular form validator, whereas on the server uh, server side, it would hook into Mongoose. But from a developer standpoint, you don't even see that stuff. That's part of the framework itself that actually builds, uh, implements it in those two ways. I'm just writing something in a very generic format.
3: Does that make sense? I'm still trying to understand the value proposition, Jeff. And by the way, I, I hope that on the show we put the link to your PowerPoint or your slides or whatever, because that's very helpful in sort of framing and, and filling in. So I'm, I'm thinking about what you're striving for, and I'm trying to find out when I would need what you're talking about, because I don't – I can't – there's there – of course, there are extremes. At one level, there are certain kinds of things. There's a great slide you have of the eight things that you really target – and I get security, the overlap of some code and security and data validation, possibly model definition, because you kind of want those things to be symmetric. And if you've got JavaScript on both sides, great. But I can't figure out why I'm going to bring, essentially attempt to even fake executing the entire application on the server. Can you tell me why that would be important to me?
2: Well, a couple of things. So it's a very good question right now. You're not faking the entire application um, right off the bat. It's just a portion of it because you're trying to render just the initial state of a given route. So there's really, let's let's break this down into two primary motivations for doing isomorphic JavaScript, okay? You know, one motivation is developer productivity. The other is to make your users happy. So for the developer productivity, it centers around what you kind of started to talk about, Ward, which is you know, you're eliminating duplicated code, you're making things dry, you're trying to make yourself more efficient. Now, when I talked to other developers about this aspect of things, it sometimes gets debatable because, you know, some people argue that just copying and pasting in certain circumstances or having some small level of duplicated code, like the effort to do isomorphic is not worth, you know, getting that ultra dryness. Now, in that aspect, I think that in some cases that might be valid. From my own personal experience, the past year of doing this has been, you know, my most productive year as a developer because of this sort of approach. So I can't speak for everybody or every situation as far as kind of productivity, but I just know from my own situation, the way we've been doing things, it has been a huge increase in productivity for uh, from the developer standpoint. But the other reason which is was actually our primary motivator to begin with. So we didn't do this initially thinking, oh, we want to be ultra productive. You know, we did it actually for concern for our users. And specifically, that is because we have a consumer-facing app, which that makes a big difference whether it's a consumer-facing app versus just internal. And so a consumer-facing app where most of our traffic comes from search engines. Most of our traffic comes from people Googling us. They don't know who we are. You know, we're in the top of the search results and they come to our page. So in that situation in particular, there's the extra motivation for isomorphic JavaScript because server rendering is so important. And again, you know, there's many reasons why since we started this that have been, you know, huge benefits, but the initial motivation was doing server rendering with an application um, and combining that with a rich application that also has kind of many of the modern features that you normally have with a single-page application. So we do things in real time and have it as a very rich experience. And so combining those two, you really need isomorphic JavaScript.
3: I buy the SEO argument, although I heard that Angular has, or Google has something out that's supposed to take ah, care I'm, of that.
2: I'm glad you brought this
3: up. But, so, but so, 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 I want you to get there. I want you to get there. But just to say, but if you take SEO off the table and maybe you know that initial page load, so that the application appears to be doing something, which you could do with a splash screen. Let's face it. I'm still not clear about why it's of utility. All right, because if I'm dealing with an app, once I'm in the app, you know, if it's my bank account app, I mean, I don't really do SEO over my bank account, right? I'm not interested in having Aaron surf in deep link into my bank account. So Why? I've, I've got I'm, four
1: I've, kids. I need your money.
3: So I'm I'm curious about that. But okay, you've got a consumer-facing app. That's critical. You need SEO. That's critical. But beyond providing whatever people are supposed to search, how am I supposed to get excited about this? And then you can tell me about Google's solution for SEO.
2: Yeah, definitely. So it all depends on the situation. The one you describe as a bank app is not exactly the sweet spot. So the sweet spot for what I'm talking about is When you have a consumer-facing app that really depends on people coming there for the first time, either organically or through ads or whatever it is, where they don't necessarily know who you are and they very often have a high bounce rate, like if you don't do things right. And in that case, there's many studies out there about how important the initial page load performance is. So it doesn't matter if, you know, once your application is loaded, I mean, this is typically the case with a single page application, especially an Angular single page application that, you know, after the initial bootstrap and page load, you know, typically it's pretty fast as you're kind of navigating around. But the reality for many websites and really for all of ours is that a large majority of users don't get past that first page load. Like if you don't get them in the first page load, like capture them somehow, then they're lost. And so in those cases, initial page load is hugely important. And in fact, Google's done a lot of studies about how 250 milliseconds For actually seeing something on on the screen right off the bat is the difference between, you know, uh, you know, whether it's much less than that or much greater has, you know, a big impact on your user retention. Now you brought up putting up a splash screen or something like that. And that's actually a, a common trick, right? For, um, you know, putting up something that's not the actual content, but, uh, just like, okay, something's loading or whatever. And that works sometimes, you know, again, depends on the app, but the power of doing isomorphic JavaScript is when you go to a page that's rendered, you know, on the server, and then having the client kind of take over is that it kind of instantly appears. There's a net positive effect to users when they see that kind of pop there. And it's just all there. Like it's not, you know, uh, a waiting page or splash screen, it, it is the actual content. And then yeah the actual interactions and client side stuff doesn't kick in until you know angular bootstraps, but by that time you know the user has looked over the initial page and then it's ready to go so for something like that, like our use case, it is the difference between you know life and death or whatever. but yeah, for a number of applications, I could totally see that it doesn't make as much of a difference.
3: I understand that I understand the initial load case and and the the study you're describing. You know, and I'm going to bracket the question of whether, you know, why it is that a server at a great remove is capable of composing the page and delivering it faster than I can compose it on the client when i'm receiving less data and and the gate you know the block there is how fast can i have an uh you know the traffic over the the network i would have thought but so i think that's an interesting question in of itself but let's bracket that and say yep if initial page load is your issue you may really want to have server-side rendering for those initial arriving pages tell us about the um uh, from an seo perspective though which is different Tell us a little bit about that Google um, business that we're supposed to be at at the uh, end of 2014.
2: Sure. Just uh, tacking on to our discussion of performance, uh, performance is is really big for SEO. It's one of the biggest positive signals that Google, on-page positive signals that Google takes into account. So even though Google is indeed indexing some (laughs) client-side rendered HTML, the fact that most single-page applications still take a while for that initial page load has an impact on uh, SEO. So, like, you can get around that. You know, there's ways to, like, make your bootstrap process faster and optimize that. But, you know, most people starting out, that isn't the case, right? Now, taking performance aside, one thing I would say is that eventually... There's no doubt that client-side rendering will be totally sufficient for, um, SEO and, uh, there won't be that big of a difference whether you have a server-side or a client-side app. But right now it's not the case. So if you look at any competitive search terms, especially like e-commerce terms, let's say, like, you know, something you would look on eBay for, it's all server-side rendered websites that are at the top ranking. Like the moment that a client-side rendered application beats one of those server-side uh, websites for one of those competitive terms, like one of the e-commerce, uh, you know, buying a TV or something like that, then that's like our signal of like, okay, we can forget about server-side rendering, it's all good on the client. And I mean, there's a lot of subtlety to like why that has not the case yet, but really what it comes down to is that, you know, Google depends on artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence d- depends on a set of learning data, data that, that's learned over time, and the amount of data that it has for client-side rendered apps is minute compared to server-side rendered websites. So they have a, a distinct advantage just because of the fact that the search algorithms just know and understand server-side rendered websites so much better. But I definitely grant you that eventually that will change. Eventually it will be perfectly fine to just rely on a single-page app. But I I, I don't think that will be still for another couple of years, at
0: least. All right, I'm going to change uh, topics a little bit and head us more into the direction of isomorphic JavaScript and AngularJS. So how how do the two mix?
2: Okay, so when you're talking about how any framework kind of implements isomorphic JavaScript, it can occur either built within the framework itself, like React is a good example of the framework just by the nature of the way the framework works, is very good at rendering on the server and doing things isomorphically. But other uh, frameworks like Ember or Backbone, they can be rendered on the server and and you can have isomorphic components, but they usually require a little extra help. So that's why Ember, they've written a new component called Fastboot and Backbone has another library called Render. And so those extra kind of add-on components help with the uh, server-side rendering and, and some of the other components that go along with it. For Angular, when you try to do that, there's some things about Angular that actually surprisingly make things, you know, not too bad, namely the fact that everything is dependent on dependency injection. That actually allows you to create something on the server side utilizing dependency injection and kind of switch things in and out. Uh The tough thing and then really the big challenge is the fact that Angular routing depends so heavily on the DOM. Like it, the templating engine for Angular reads the DOM. It doesn't read like a string. Like most other frameworks have like a template, like a handlebars template that produces, you know, a string or whatever. And that's much easier to deal with, right? So for Angular, when we started looking at this, there's kind of three phases we went through. You know, one was that and this was way, way way early on even before you know lucas was working with us that you know you can try to just put angular in a box like in a using a headless browser and kind of uh just let it generate um as if it's on the client side but like something like phantom js and capture that HTML and reuse that for your server side. And that works to a degree. I mean, that's what like sites like prerender.io use. But there's a lot of uh, problems with that. You know, namely, uh, the, the performance is terrible. It's something that you couldn't use, uh, in real time and, you know, at, at runtime, you have to cache the pages and then you run into lots of issues of how you manage all your cached HTML and that type of thing. So that for us wasn't going to work. So the next thing is to try to do something like Ember is doing now or like Airbnb did with render and backbone, which is to build something kind of within the framework work alongside it. And actually, this is something in when I talked to uh, Matthias about this. Uh, about a year ago. He he was strongly an advocate of doing things this way. And uh, I tried to do it. I tried to essentially overwrite certain components within the Angular framework in order to render stuff on the server. And uh, maybe it's possible, I guess. But um, I, I eventually stopped after I realized that I was going to practically rewrite the entire framework. It just uh, was getting too messy and just was not going to uh, be something that would be sustainable. So what we ultimately ended up on, which has worked out extremely well, is to have a sort of preprocessor. So what that means is you have your code in a Node.js format, you know, so like a server-side format, and then you utilize an adapter, what we call a transformer, to essentially build during, you know, your, your build step, the Angular code. So essentially all the Angular code that we use on the client side, is generated, auto-generated from our kind of common format. And obviously on the, that common format has an adapter on the server side that knows how to handle it. So when it, that just kind of understanding that, like all of the different elements like data and routing, you know, we were able to come up with easy ways of translating uh, one and the other. The tricky part, uh, you know, again, was with the view rendering. And the key for that came by creating you know, our own template abstraction that uh, is called jangular, which looks a lot like I've used the uh, react.dom functions for rendering in React. It sort of looks like that. It's basically functions um, that mimic uh, or match each of the different kind of HTML elements. And you can string them together. And by utilizing that and having our templates in this jangular format that gives us the abstraction we need to make that sort of switch of building out on the client side an Angular template and Angular code, and then the server, you know, just kind of naturally building it out in a way that can be used in, well, really whatever server side framework you're using. We're, we happen to be using happy.js on the server, but you really could use whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does.
3: Yeah, it did to me. And, and looking at that code snippet that was on your uh, slides, that one really uh, it reveals it, and it does look very React-like. I guess React wasn't around when you started. I hear something about m- mixing Angular and React. Did that ever occur to you, or was it just too late?
2: Yeah, so like two years ago when I started, uh, it wasn't around. And there really wasn't any good isomorphic framework around. There was Derby, uh, Meteor, but like they... Weren't that good at it, even though they sort of did it. So I decided I was going to, you know, do, just make it work with Angular. And since then, you know, React has come out. And there was a time that I thought about switching, but I did, I did a really deep analysis. And what I came to the conclusion of is that all the stuff that they were doing in React, you can pretty much do it in Angular too. So I, I tried to essentially take the best of both worlds and, and take the best pieces out of how React works and sort of bring it to Angular.
3: Yeah, I could see how that might be, because unlike in React on the client, you don't have to worry about detecting DOM changes and caching that and all the trickiness that they do. You just have to render it once and send it, right? Yep. Yeah, that's the really hard part. The scary part about React is all the work they do to compare, you know, effective imaginary DOM images. And, and that, fortunately, you don't have that. So, uh, yeah, that made sense, even if it made me feel squirrely about putting <laughs> logic in JavaScript.
2: Well, it's interesting with uh, that as an FYI. Like I did actually, there is a way to actually do a um, virtual DOM diffing in Angular. Like it sounds weird about that, but to be honest, uh, when I tried it out, I didn't find any performance gains. It wasn't worth it. So I do have certain constructs in there to do something somewhat like a one-way data flow, like is in React, but I still use data binding. I still use a lot of the Angular Constructs, So it's really kind of a hybrid of different stuff that I'm kind of bringing together.
3: No, that makes perfect sense. Were there any stumbling around? Uh, I'm thinking about this as I was trying to imagine how to do it. You know, from my perspective, the things, because I don't do stuff that's consumer-facing, but I do care about having the same data validation and some model definition and utility. Some of the set of things that you mentioned that are, have value on both sides, when I code them for the browser side, I'm usually tying into the whole Angular framework and mod, you know all the components and modules and stuff like that. How easy was that to transport or execute on the server? Was did that get out of your way? Was it in your way?
2: Actually, it worked out great because all of our data we almost write no code for from on a daily basis as we're kind of making changes in that type of thing because we rely on maybe it's a bad name now I'm thinking about but, but uh, it, we use this resource file not not an internationalization resource file like an actual um, a file that basically contains a configuration for your data object so it'll contains these fields and it uses these validations and it even has like security stuff in there all in just a big like, config file format. And then you have a bunch of adapters that kind of work off of that resource file. So just as an an example of uh, some of the stuff, like, on the API side, we have an adapter that works off that resource file and automatically generates API endpoints. Similarly, on the Angular side, we have the jangular process that generates all the Angular code will look through those resource files and automatically generate API clients. And that way... When you're using the Angular code, it will use a similar interface or the same interface, really, that's on the client and server. And just behind the scenes, it'll know that, okay, I'm on the client, I'm making an API call versus on the server, it knows I'm on the server, I'll call the database. And so for validations, uh, specifically using the Angular uh, validators, that auto-generation process has a thing that looks at the validations and it'll automatically generate a series of uh, custom Angular valid. Well, not all. Sometimes it hooks into the uh, built-in Angular validators, but for uh, a lot of stuff, it'll build a custom Angular validator. And then in our forms and that type of thing, in our uh, templates, rather, you can reference those just like you normally do in Angular. Does that make sense? Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I, I, I at least that's a clue. And now I can go look at your stuff and see how that works. By the way, are you publishing your stuff, this glue code? This, is it available out there where other people can look at it?
2: It's all available right now. I don't think it's ready for other people to use quite yet. So it's something where, and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, and people can certainly kind of look it through and even try some of the parts out, especially the lower level libraries, like the stuff that is uh, is pretty solid, like the the template generator is pretty solid and a couple other pieces. But some of the higher level stuff is is a little bit probably too much in flux to... Utilize. But yeah, I'll, I'll maybe um, put some links in there and, and make sure I update the uh, documentation so if anyone wants to check it out, you can see what I mean. That's cool. Hey,
3: Jeff, have you talked to the Angular team about what you're doing and have they thought about what they're going to do f- to cover this ground in 2.0? Do you have any insights on that?
2: The last time I talked to them was uh, at ngConf last year. And the message I got then from when I talked to Brad and uh, Mishko was that. You know, they, during the uh, 1.2, when they were building Angular.1.2, they tried for a while to build out a server side rendering component within Angular Core. And they sort of gave up on it just because it didn't, wasn't turning out to their liking. They didn't think it, uh, it just went against some of their philosophies, I think. And, and also, I, I think just Angular as a, a whole is trying to push really for the client side stuff. They, they want, the web to really move towards being client side only and that's fine for them and and they're trying to kind of uh you know push that just as general philosophy but kind of the reality of kind of today's world this is still uh you know very relevant for a number of companies uh which is why I kind of I built it and I and I explained kind of what I was doing and they were very uh encouraging but uh, I, I didn't get any sense that they were going to uh, do it themselves. And and as far as in uh, 2.0, they are not, you know, do, definitely doing server rendering from what I've seen, but I, I've talked to uh, Igor a little bit. And, you know, some of their components actually are built in a way that can be used a little bit more isomorphically. So like one example of something that I'm trying out now that, that seems to be working is the new dependency injector for 2.0 is actually able to be used, you know, on the server side as well. So that's kind of cool. Like I, I built my own dependency injector to use on the server side uh, for now, but I might be switching over to there's once kind of two always more solidified.
3: So well, that makes I mean, you the man for now.
1: The DIJS <laughs> the part of 2.0, it's already. I mean, we're using it for some app at Domo. And so their DIJS, that's actually ready for people to, to begin using and dropping in. That's cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's good to hear. All right. Anything else that we really need to cover before we get to the picks?
2: Uh, the one, one last thing I was going to mention that uh, we didn't talk about is uh, there is one kind of cool side effect of all this, which is that not for everything, but for a certain code, I'm able to test what's really client side code on the server. And, you know, again, it depends if you need to, sometimes you want to have the client side dependencies when you're testing, so that you actually run it in the context of the client. But for certain things, You don't need to, and because everything is in this common kind of server-side format, even though it's ultimately client-side code, we can, you know, run our our tests without, you know, Karma or, like, kind of the the browser, and, you know, that makes them faster, makes it easier to run, and we've seen it kind of make our code, like, more stable. So that's kind of the one cool side effect that we didn't uh, talk about.
0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Aaron, do you want to start us off with picks?
1: I'm gonna pick Woot dot com because I just got a new TV and it's almost in town and I'm pumped about that. It's my pick.
0: Alright. I forgot to ask. We usually ask Joe if there's any news about NGConf.
1: NGConf. I don't know about news. Um it's gonna be amazing. If you wanna like host a remote viewing party, go ahead and head over to the site and sign up. By the time this, this podcast is out, there will be a map for people to go and like see all their local remote viewing parties, if there are any, so maybe you can go join one and and get a t-shirt while you're there. And but yes, yeah, so the site's going to be updated with a lot of those those NGConf extended updates, so that you can discover the meetups around you. And also, if you don't have one, you know, be confident in, in in creating one. That knowing there's not already one in your area. So that's the only real announcement that we have. Other than that, you know, if you got tickets, buy your hotels because the hotel rooms are almost gone.
0: I also want to point out. I don't know, this might be a little premature, but Joe finalized things with me at least so that we could do an Adventures in Angular episode at NGConf, and we'll be doing that during lunch one of the days. So keep an eye out for that. If you like the show, then you can like it at NGConf. Yeah,
1: that'll be awesome, by the way.
0: Yeah, I'm excited.
1: Got to get your stickers ready, man. Stickers.
0: Yeah, I do. Of course, one other thing, and I just want to kind of give a pat on the back to... The NGConf organizers, you know, Aaron, Joe, and the rest of the the gang, as well as the organizers of the Mountain West Ruby and JavaScript conference, they actually scheduled themselves around each other, which is very convenient for me since they're all in Salt Lake, and I usually attend Mountain West. So Mountain West JavaScript is the two days before NGConf, and Mountain West Ruby is Monday and Tuesday the week after. So, hey Chuck,
2: that's actually when I met you for the first time. Was at Mountain West JavaScript last year.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I thought you sounded familiar. <laughs> All right. Uh, Ward, what are your picks?
2: All right. Well,
3: from a technology perspective, I want to say uh, that I'm finding Gulp increasingly a part of my life. And it's kind of interesting. There's a Gulp 4 on the way. Now sit down. Because <laughs> <laughs> just what we need is another version of something, right? The, by the looks of it, it handles a very important problem, which is uh, parallel tasks coordinating parallel tasks, and also it's not a hard conversion. And and John Papa will be talking about that at some point. But it's there on the horizon, and it looks good. But you, you'll be able to keep running your Gulp 3, and Gulp is really good stuff. My non-tech thing is, and this is really odd, is a kid's movie, Paddington, which I saw with my niece. And I have to say <laughs> that that keeps an adult entertained while it keeps the kids Absolutely riveted to the screen. Nicole Kidman is a little on the dark side, which is the way I like her, but uh but <laughs> she won't totally scare the kids. But anyway
0: Very nice. Yeah, so it it's not as dumb as the previews make it look?
3: No, it's got, it. you know, it's it's got some cleverness. Like, they, remember Bowwinkle and Rocky? They always had lines in there for, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm saying it's like that, but they always had lines in there for adults that the kids missed, but that we made it tolerable for us to sit next to a, you know, an eight-year-old and watch something.
0: Awesome. All right. I'm sure I have a pick. Oh, yeah. Slack. So uh, I have a new client that wanted to use uh, some kind of chat room, which I've set up for clients before, but they never actually used them. This client seems to actually be using theirs, and we're using Slack, and it's awesome. Um, I've also used FlowDoc, IRC. I've looked at Gitter, and there are a whole bunch of other ones out there, but Slack is just being awesome. So I'm going to pick them. They also have a Mac app and an iOS app, which means that I can kind of keep tabs on what's going on with that contract as I go. So anyway, that's my pick. Jeff, what's your pick?
2: I read an awesome article on Medium the other day called what I learned about the future by reading a hundred science fiction books. Uh, Basically this guy just read, you know, a lot of the most prominent science fiction authors, you know, a lot of their um, more recent books. And he not only kind of coalesced a lot of their predictions of the future into this kind of one overarching, this is what's going to happen in the future, which is kind of interesting. But then he also talks about how the process of creating science fiction is actually important for envisioning and and building the actual reality of uh, the future. Um, So it's just a super interesting article all the way around, and I uh, highly recommend it.
0: All right. Well, I don't think we have any other announcements. I am toying with the idea of putting together kind of an in-person meetup. Uh, out here in utah probably in park city or something so if you're interested in coming to something like that where we just kind of get together you know have some dinner together for an evening and then maybe rent a conference room or something somewhere where we can have kind of a hack night or just chat then shoot me an email chuck at devchat.tv otherwise have a great day and we'll catch y'all next week Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit dot com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com and sign up today.